Well, he is risen. The content of this message is coming to you in no small measure, courtesy of my wife. This morning, after laboring at fair length over the weekend on this message, I arrived here with the PowerPoint safely stashed back at our house. And I thought, oh my, now what do I do? So Velma very gamely volunteered to zoom back to the house and get the USB drive and all the rest of it. Now, what makes this disconcerting for me is this is exactly now the second Sunday running that I have done this. I was in Henley last week and did the identical stunt, but of course, it's a bit far to run back from Henley at the last minute to get your PowerPoint, so I had to uh, improvise. So I think probably what might happen is today on the way home, my good wife might drop me off at Tumbling Bay over here, um, and uh, we'll see how I get along. I might fit right in. So this morning... I am privileged and we are privileged to celebrate the great moment in redemption history. The morning God broke Jesus out of the grave. You know, it's a jailbreak. That's the way to think of it. He sprung his son. And we're going to see that that idea of someone that's trapped somewhere because he's our representative, not because we deserved it, not because he deserved it, but because he was representing us and he had to enter into the plight where we are in death. That's why he's in that tomb. And the details about this big boulder having to get rolled away. You know what that is? That's like in the old American westerns when they spring some guy out of jail and they blow the the prison door, the the, the front door off the jail. And the, the door has been blown off its hinges. That is what that moved stone means. Because God, on the morning we're remembering, raised Jesus. It's a jailbreak. So let's see how it all fits together. Why the resurrection changes everything. For the New Testament writers, it did just that. This is the turning point in history. What really happened on that morning? Let's look. One thing we can look at is that it brought, that is the resurrection brought, a new beginning. Now, we will see this if we perceptively look at the way the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, play the scene out. And there's some juicy tidbits in here. When you see it, you think, hey, he's trying to tell us something. It may not always be sitting flat on the surface, but it's there. So, here's some examples. One is the way they show us the timing of this event. In Jesus' own predictions of his resurrection, he consistently timed or located his resurrection as being on what he called the third day. That phrase actually had some history in Jesus' time. Because if you go back to the law and the prophets, Exodus 19, we, uh, God tells Moses, tell the people to get ready for the third day. Because I'm going to come down onto Sinai. It comes back again in Hosea. I don't have the reference, but third day in the old covenant came to represent a moment of God breaking in in a decisive way. And so Jesus describing or anticipating this event uses that phrase, the third day. However, 
The resurrection accounts that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John give us, and they, of course, are writing under the inspiration of the Spirit. They are much, very much in tune with all that's going on. They, note this, they dispense with the, quote, quote, third day terminology. And they shift to something else. They keep saying, on the first day of the week. It's very consistent. Have a look. A few times they add in another detail. It's the first day of the week, like when the women come to the tomb and all that. And it's very early in the morning. Or um, Luke 24, 1, at dawn. Well, why this shift? Why didn't they, in locating this glorious event in time, why didn't they just stick with the masters, with Jesus' original phrasing? They felt impressed to use a different term. Here's another clue to what's going on here. That's the location. We only really get this once. It's in the fourth gospel. John, John 19, verse 41. He is buried and he is raised in a garden. There's a few other juicy details. We're going to wrap this, see how this comes together in a moment. In the Emmaus story, we're told that at the moment when the risen Lord, whom the two disciples don't recognize initially, they're trudging along from Jerusalem to Emmaus, very downcast. Someone comes walking up and walks along with them. It's the risen Jesus, but they don't know it. So they walk along talking, and then it's getting late in the day. They say, why don't you stay with us? We have a place we can stay. And he says, yeah, okay. He comes in. They sit down for a meal, and at the table, he picks up the loaf and breaks the loaf open. And in that moment, (gasps) now Luke could have said they all of a sudden recognized him. But he doesn't say they recognized him. That's not the terms he uses. And Luke's a very careful writer, uh, a medical doctor, formal education, probably the best Greek in the New Testament we get in Luke and in Acts. He's very careful the way he puts things together. And he doesn't just say, all of a sudden they realized it was Jesus. He says, and their eyes were opened. What's that all about? In John's account, We're told in John 20, the disciples are locked inside this upper room and with the door, they're hidden in there with the doors locked because of fear of persecution. Then Jesus, all of a sudden, he doesn't need doors, thank you very much, just all of a sudden, there he is. And we're told he breathed on them. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Why does it say he breathed on them? What is going on? Now let's see if we can suss out what Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are telling us in the way they unfold these events. I want to suggest that what's going on is a new beginning. The first day terminology where they dispense with Jesus' own Phrasings of on the third day, on the third day, which, as we've said, that has a rich heritage in the law and in the prophets, they all of a sudden dispense with that. They move from third day to first day because they see that what Jesus is doing is taking the world back to Genesis 1. 
God, through Christ, the risen Christ, is giving the whole world a new beginning. It's like day one again. Is that good news? We sure need that. The garden location that John 19.41 gives us, well, of course. Where else have we read about a garden? When things went slightly wrong. Well, God has now stepped into another garden to put them back right again. Is that good news? Luke's little detail. Their eyes were opened. Of course, as we've observed, he could have simply said, all of a sudden they realized it was Jesus. They saw that as he he picked up the loaf, they looked at the nail prints in his wrists or something like that. Well, whatever it was that triggered it, nail prints or just the supernatural power of the spirit, whatever it was, he says their eyes were opened. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a quote from Genesis, word for word. When Adam and Eve eat the fruit, they were forbidden to eat at their own peril. Genesis 3, 7 their eyes were opened. And they, moment, and they instantly knew everything was wrong now. Their eyes were opened and they, what, they knew they, what, they were naked. And they ran from one another because they were so embarrassed. They ran and hid from each other and from God. Their eyes were opened. But now, <laughs> I have to stop asking you, is this good news? Because... <laughs> Everything here is good news. But now, descendants of Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's race, all of us live in that sense of shame. We all know what it's like to feel ashamed of who we are. There's something toxic about me as a person. That is shame. We we feel somehow incurably flawed. That's shame. We're embarrassed. I want to hide all the time, cover up with fig leaves. Now, instead of... Staying in Adam and Eve mode and our eyes are opened to see our nakedness and feel so self-conscious about it. Their eyes are opened and they see the risen Savior. He is the answer to the mess Adam and Eve brought in. Do we see it? This is God's solution. The answer to our shame is the risen Christ. Let's write that on our brains. You know, I could stop preaching right now. I'm not going to. But, but we, even if we just got this, the answer to our shame is the risen Christ. Because he pulls the gaze of our souls. A.W. Tozer defined faith as the gaze of the soul. I've always liked that phrase. And Christ, the risen one now, he pulls the gaze of these two disciples' souls. These guys are totally discouraged so disenchanted, so disillusioned because they had all these hopes that Jesus was the one that would redeem Israel. Well, he was. They just didn't realize how. And they were turned in on themselves in their depression and disappointment. The gaze of their souls was on their souls. So they were in Adam and Eve mode. They were looking at themselves. All of a sudden, there in front of them is the risen Lord. And then their eyes are opened, and he pulls the gaze of their souls off of themselves and onto him. If that can happen for us, it'll change us forever. We stop analyzing ourselves and taking our pulse and thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It gets us out of all that. Our eyes are on him. Does that sound like a good way to live? Our eyes on him. Now, another juicy bit. This thing of him breathing 
on them. It's in John 20. They're locked away in this room, quite literally locked because they're afraid of arrest or persecution. Jesus unexpectedly appears there in the midst of them. And he breathes on them. There's a couple of things to note in this little scene, John 20. One is he breathes on them. And he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, once more, we're revisiting Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, the creator comes and gets, I don't know how much clay he used, I don't know what Adam weighed, but he takes all this clay and molds it into a man. Probably taller than I am, but... But initially, it was, Adam was nothing more than a clay statue. Formed, you know, looked like a man outwardly, but nothing more than a clay statue. And then the Lord comes, we're told, Genesis 2, and breathes into him the breath of life. <laughs> These blokes hidden in the upper room perhaps were not much more than a bunch of lumps of clay at this point. They were discouraged. They were disenchanted. They were afraid. And then in a replay of that moment in Eden, God comes and breathes on them, breathes into them. And he anticipates what's going to happen at Pentecost because he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Someone suggested this is an hors d'oeuvre of the day of Pentecost. And he, ah. Remember Aslan in the Narnia stories? Remember him? And whenever the children are afraid or going into battle or something like that, he says, come, let me breathe on you. And it says his sweet lion breath would just wash over them and all their fears were gone. That's what happens with these guys. There's something else he does or says in this moment. He breathes on them and he says, receive the spirit. So he's taking us back to the new beginning. But there's another precious thing, and that's what he says. And you look in this account, John 20, he actually says it twice. He says, peace be with you. And he is saying those words. That was a respectful Hebrew greeting. It meant what, things are okay. If I said it to, to Keith, peace be with you, it meant things are all right between him and me. Now, Jesus would have, in most people's minds, been entirely entitled to think things were not okay between him and these people. These are the same blokes that had said, oh, when he says he's going to get arrested, they say, well, don't worry, Jesus. We'll stand by you. You can count on us, Jesus. Well, we know what happened when the guards come and Judas is leading the way and they've got torches and whatnot. Mark 1450. They all forsook him and fled. Full stop. That's a sobering moment in the Gospels. Same guys. Now they're hiding in this room and the risen Jesus appears. Perhaps they're feeling a bit like Adam and Eve in Eden. (gasps) How are they going to face him? What does he do? Does he say, oh, thanks a lot, boys. Where were you when I needed you? He says, peace be with you. Isn't that an amazing thing? 
the past is dealt with. You know what? We're going to pray for folk this morning. And I, I'm just feeling there's probably someone here that just needs to know with short certainty this morning, the past is dealt with. That's such a hope that Christians have. Because of Good Friday and because of Easter morning, the past is dealt with. That's why, because he died to take their sin, he can say, peace be with you. And the future has begun. There's a new beginning. That's the point we're making now. The resurrection changes everything. And one of the ways that it does that is it creates a new beginning. The future has begun. A new future has begun in the risen one. That rhymes. That's a, we can make a rap out of that one. That's a, the future has begun in the risen one. Okay. Who needs you too, Simon? The future has begun in the risen one. I like it. Okay. Another reason the resurrection changes everything is because it brought the reversal of death. If we look back at death, next minute or so will be a bit sobering. If we look back at death in the big picture, here's what we see. And it gives some relief and backdrop to the meaning of the resurrection. In Genesis 2.17, God warns Adam. I don't know how many trees there were in that garden. He was allowed to eat of literally all of them but one. Now, I don't think that was such a bad deal. Well, you know what happened. He decided he had to eat along with Eve. They They felt they had to eat out of the one they were supposed not to eat. And God warns Adam... Before the fact, and he says these words, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. First reference in scripture to death. And it comes as a warning. When Adam and Eve jointly do partake of the fruit, they disobey God. Then God comes in Genesis 3 and brings a series of statements that really are judgments. One of them is these words. Genesis 3.19, For you are dust. Where'd the clay come from? Well, it was water mixed with dust. Is that me? This is my wife. Never mind. There's a room next to me and Tumbling Babe will bring you. Um, For you are dust and to dust you will return. Okay, I'll keep on track here. Death comes now as a judgment. If you eat it, you will die. They do eat it, and then God says this, you know, Adam, you know what I made you out of? I made you out of clay, and the clay came from the dust, and that's where you're going to end up. You're going back where you came. Genesis 5, keep this sobering survey going. Genesis 5 is the Bible's first uh, genealogy, list of begats, and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so. First one in all of Scripture. But set at strategic points in that chapter, there's a refrain. It'll say somebody's name and how many years he lived and then how many sons he had and so forth. And then it'll say this, and he died. And he died. 
I think that little statement is in there five times, and it's not that long a chapter. And he died. And he died. Another kind of death comes in later in the great exile from the promised land. This is many, many centuries later. Death and exile and that very grim vision God gives Ezekiel of the valley of the skeletons. Disconnecting skeletons, not just dead bodies, but skeletons where the bones had come apart. Now that is a picture of death if there ever was one. So mankind and then the chosen nation Israel are under judgment and the judgment is death. Physical death, spiritual death, emotional death, cultural death, whatever you want to call it, it's death. Now, notice what happens. Back to our jailbreak. On the morning of the first day of the week, we see that the stone is rolled away. The door of the prison has been blown off its hinges. And the tomb is empty. Wouldn't be much good for the door to get blown off its hinges if the prisoner's still stuck inside. The women and the disciples who do come, they look around and the tomb is empty. A very prominent theme. All four gospel writers emphasize that. Not only is the tomb empty, but the shroud is empty. In the Lazarus account, you remember that one. Lazarus, at Jesus' command, comes out of his grave, but he's wrapped up in his shroud, in his grave clothes. And Jesus has to say, take off those grave clothes, all those bindings, and let him go free. When the disciples come into the tomb, the shroud that Jesus had been wrapped in was still there, but it was empty. It's like he, I'm looking for the right word, vaporized out of it. He somehow morphed into a different form of matter. He was gone. He wasn't even any longer in the shroud. What's going on here is this. Genesis 3.19 is being reversed. Adam, you are dust, and to dust you will return. Now that remained in place for many, many, many ages and centuries. To dust you will return. When we come to the New Testament, particularly Acts, we don't have time to survey this, there's a place where Acts, the apostles preaching the resurrection of Jesus, which they constantly did, they would quote a statement in, from Psalm 16, I believe it's verse 20, I'm not sure in the verse. Psalm 16, which says this, You will not let your Holy One see decay. Why was that so significant? The reason that five times the apostles in the book of Acts quote that verse from Psalm 16. Why was that such a big thing for them? Well, they knew that when God didn't let Jesus see decay, God was reversing the death sentence on Adam's race. Because the sentence had been, Mr., you're made of dust, and to dust you're going back. That stayed true up until the morning of the first day of the week. Are you with me? Something has changed. The resurrection brought the reversal of death. What's going on is this. Death is a sentence. We have to remember this. It's a penalty. And Jesus went into death. Perhaps 
Just let your imagination play here. And Joseph of Arimathea, remember, he's the one that had the tomb. And we're told he went to Pontius Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he takes this body respectfully, lovingly, and places the body in the tomb. That tomb, being placed in the tomb, meant being placed into death. He was receiving in his own destiny the sentence that was on Adam's race. However, on the morning of the first day of the week, all this changed. God raised him out of death. He placed him into death on our behalf, but then he raised him out of death on our behalf. In Jesus, God has reversed the death sentence. He took our death and he gives us his life. Just let those phrases wash through your head. He took our death and he gives us his life. Those that were with us on Friday morning, we had a brief time remembering the Lord's death. Good Friday, he took our death. And he gives us his life. That's what we are celebrating this morning. Death, as we've seen, is a multifaceted thing. It's a grim reality. There's physical death. What about physical death? Well, praise the Lord, we're going to get new bodies when the Lord returns. At the sound of the trumpet, the the, the archangels call and all of that, the Lord's going to descend and we are going to get new bodies. I'm going to be taller than David Freeman. I asked the Lord for that. David pastors me in many ways, and he gives me a hug, and I always have to... On the resurrection, that's going to change, David. (laughs) Cultural death. Do you know there's such a thing as cultural death? Cultures that rebel against God die. Isaiah 25, 7. There's a great image that I've always taken heart, because I have a love for culture and learning and cultural riches of the nations and whatnot. Pardon me. Isaiah 25, verse 7. Isaiah says that the great sheet or shroud that covers the nations is going to be torn off. I like that. There's something there of cultures that as as a culture will receive the fruit of the gospel, God will bless it. If you've seen the, the YouTube video, Magnificent, is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. And they have... It's, I think it's done by CGI in somehow, some way, but they have, uh, looks like great sheets covering buildings. And was that Fez they made that? Yeah. Uh, covering buildings in Fez. And they're singing the Magnificent Song, which is a great song. And as they do, these sheets begin to p- come off. You just have to go on YouTube and type in Magnificent YouTube. It's really effective. And that's what's coming on. Okay, there's physical death, but we get new bodies. Cultural death, but the impact of the gospel, I would argue, in measure, in measure, in measure, even prior to Christ's return, the gospel can mitigate against the death-bringing influences of sin in the world. And we can see redemption in measure coming to the cultures of the world. Uh, in Ezekiel, and again in Revelation, we read about the healing of the nations. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Isaiah 42, verse 1, the servant of Yahweh that Isaiah emphasizes so much, 
What's he going to do? He's going to bring mishpat, justice, justice to the nations. Cultural death, God has an answer for it. Another kind of death, spiritual and moral death. When we sin, we die. Morally, spiritually. But God has an answer because of the morning of the first day of the week. We can walk, Romans 6, verse 4, in newness of what? Of life. If we feel trapped in wrong reactions, I have a phrase I always like to tell myself, but I don't live in it like I want to. I don't, I don't have to live that way anymore. Why not? Here's why not. Because the stone has been rolled away. It's as simple as that. Why not? Because the tomb is empty. My legal representative on that morning was sprung. The door of his prison that he went in there representing me, that door has got blown off its hinges. And now, he's still my legal representative. He has been raised from the dead. And I am raised in him. The shroud is empty. Just it's another one of these images. He has defeated death. He took our death. He gives us his life. He took our death. He gives us his life. Write it on a three by five index card and hang it on the refrigerator. He took our death. He gives us his life. Finally, the third reason that the resurrection changes everything. It's this. It brought about the era of the spirit. At the very end of Luke's gospel, Jesus says this. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So let those words sink in. I am sending, this is the risen Lord. He's in a position to say this now because he is the risen Lord. And he tells the disciples just before he ascends to the right hand of God, I am, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Let's linger here briefly. We've got four parties to this statement. Three of them are the three persons of the Trinity. First one is Jesus. I am sending the promise of my Father. The promise of the Father is the Holy Spirit. And the Father is the Father. So we have Father, Son, and Spirit all represented in this amazing statement. I just said there were four parties in this statement. So Father, Son, and Spirit are three of them. The fourth one is the church. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. God sent his Spirit on Jesus. Luke three twenty-two. That's how Jesus began his public mission. He goes to the Jordan, his cousin or second cousin, whatever they were, their mothers were cousins, whatever that makes them. Uh, John baptizes Jesus, and as John does that, we're told the sky opens up and the spirit in the form of this dove comes down on Jesus. Jesus is just about to begin his mission. And in preparation for that mission, not only to do the signs and wonders, but even to do 
the gruesome bit in that final week. The Spirit comes on Jesus to anoint him and enable him to do all that God would require of him. So keep this picture in your mind. God sends his Spirit on Jesus. That's how Jesus accomplishes his mission then. His mission on earth, at any rate now complete, Jesus sends the Spirit on the church. God puts the Spirit on Jesus. Jesus puts the Spirit on the church. I like that. God puts the Spirit on Jesus. Jesus puts the Spirit on the church. I'm going to do something that for me is really scary. I'm going off my notes. Turn off the PowerPoint. There were two or more than one distinct phase of Christ's ministry. And he needed the enabling of the Spirit for both of them. At the very beginning, the chronological beginning of his public mission, he goes to the Jordan, we've just said this, this Holy Spirit comes on him, and the impact of that anointing becomes immediately tangibly obvious because he goes out and heals sick people, drives out the demons, cures lepers with a mere touch, walks on the Sea of Galilee, raises dead people, etc. This is called being under the anointing. Would you agree with that? Okay. When he comes to that final grim week that we've just been remembering in the last few days, he's not clueless as to what's ahead. In Mark's account, Mark 14, at the beginning of what we now call Holy Week, Jesus is staying, or eating at any rate, he's eating in the home of a fellow named Simon the leper. Maybe that was a restaurant, I don't know, Simon the leper's. So he was, he was eating in Simon, at Simon the leper's place with him and his disciples and this leper. The door opens and in walks this woman with a jar of expensive perfume. She comes up next to Jesus and breaks open the jar. Even the jar itself was expensive. It was made of alabaster. She breaks open the jar and pours the whole thing on Jesus as an act of love and devotion and worship. The disciples get their disciple noses royally out of joint. And they start criticizing her, saying, what, why this waste? We could have, if she wants to give it away, she could have given it to us. We could have sold the, the perfume and, and given the money to the poor. So they're up on their self-righteous horses. Jesus tells them to pipe down, shut your gob. What she has done was an anointing. Mark 14, verse 8. Stay with me because this is very relevant to the resurrection being the time when God brought in the era of the Spirit. And we're still in that era. But we need to see what the role of the Holy Spirit is all about. It's not all charismatic fireworks. He says, boys, you don't see the meaning of what just happened. What she just did was an anointing. Somebody could maybe have said, well, Lord, you were anointed by God at the Jordan. And he says, yes, I know. And this in some way revisits that. It's a sign 
of part of the meaning of that Holy Spirit anointing because it wasn't only an anointing to heal sick people and drive out evil spirits. It was an anointing to walk through what God's calling me to walk through in the next seven days. I'm going to have to do this by the power of the Spirit. Because if I don't, by the, don't do it by the power of the Spirit, I'm not going to do it. Don't forget, he was fully human. All that comes out of this very, very, very shortly after that meal, well, there's the Last Supper, comes right after it with another breaking and pouring. Interesting how all the, what this woman did was so prophetic. Then he's arrested. Men with torches late at night and clubs. I mean, come on. They're treating him like a common criminal. He gets hauled up before the high priest. This is such a supreme irony. The real high priest is Christ himself, and he gets hauled in before Caiaphas. Well, if, how high a priest, you know what I mean? So here's the supposed high priest interrogating the, royal high, the real high priest, talking to him like a criminal. He turns him over to the soldiers. They flog him. How is he getting through this? How can it even begin to make sense? Now, I suspect there's some of us, you know, what do you do when things happen that just on a natural level simply do not make sense? How many of you are going through stuff like that or, or have or are? This, Lord, this just doesn't fit. You know, I, when I signed on to follow you, I never thought it was going to mean something like this. Well, what we have to do is be under that second anointing. This isn't perfume, it's just water. Where we will know that we are commissioned and enabled to go through it. We are in the era of the Spirit. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Anointing in the Bible meant two things. It meant commissioning and it meant enabling wish we had time to develop that, but we don't. When God anoints Jesus at the Jordan, he, anoints, or he, he uh, commissions him and enables him to be the Messiah. And that included the signs and the wonders, lots of them. But the woman comes in at this strategic moment and takes the perfume. It's a sign of God now for that final dreadful time, commissioning and enabling Jesus for what is about to come. And it's God saying to his son, I'm commissioning you and I am enabling you to get through this. And maybe some of us right now are thinking, I need to know God has commissioned me and is enabling me to go through what I'm going through. You with me? Because of the resurrection, we are in the era of the spirit. We're not under the law. We're not living by physical companionship and presence of Jesus because he has ascended into heaven. But after he ascended, he sent the same anointing that was on him. And that same anointing is here this morning. The resurrection, folks, changes everything. It brings that new beginning. Good news, eh? It reverses the death sentence that rightfully belonged to all of us, but God blew the doors off, off their hinges and brought our representative out of that tomb and we can come with him. And that risen Lord now, he inaugurates the era of the Spirit. Let's let him come this morning and breathe on us. Amen. Amen.